Welcome back to the Mandarin Blueprint Podcast. My name is Phil Crimmins. I'm in here for a second week in a row because Luke has just moved to Yunnan province, Dali, which is a place that I visited uh, back in August, and it's a beautiful place. I'm very happy for Luke and his family. Uh, they're just uh, wanting to find a place that is a bit more chill than Chengdu and uh, you know has some good nature, and for the few, first few years of baby George's life, he can be in a you know, more quiet, manageable place. So very happy for Luke and his wife uh, and his new child for having a, uh, you know, a new place to live that's a bit uh, calmer. So good for him. And so he's in the midst of dealing with, you know, all the things that go along with moving from one province to another. Uh, obviously, moving house even within the same city can be a hassle. Moving to another entire province is a is a big thing. So I'll cover for him today, no problem. And uh, I thought I would start off by just reminding you guys about a couple of upcoming changes. So as a reminder, if you are on the Mandarin Blueprint Method Foundation course, this course is going to be split up into five parts. Now, the way we had to do this because of the technological restrictions of the platform we use called Kajabi is we had to clone the course, just make a copy of the course five times, and then uh, name those five new copies, phase one, phase two, phase three, phase four, phase five, and then, of course, delete all of the lessons that aren't related to those different phases. Then the other thing we had to do, which is a bit unfortunate, is we had to, the, the comments from the foundation course didn't copy over. And of course, if you're listening to this podcast, the Mandarin Bluebird podcast is all about the comments. Like everything about the comments is one of the things that makes the Mandarin Blueprint course so special. Uh, you guys are incredible. Like I cannot believe how many comments, you've left us over 15,000 comments uh, since we started our course at the beginning of 2019. Uh, it's so fantastic, uh, but because the comments don't copy over, we had to get our assistant to, um, we got our website team to export all the comments into a text file and we got our assistant to copy them over. And now I'm going through and just checking them and making sure, you know, uh, that they're, you know, all good. But now here's a good thing though. One of the things that happened as a result of having to copy over the comments is that now all the comments are in the body of the lesson description. And for some reason, yet another technical restriction of Kajabi, the body of the uh, lesson allows for clickable links. So all of the times where we respond with a, uh, a YouTube link or a Loom video or a link to another part in the course, instead of having to copy the whole link and put it into your browser, you can now just click it. Uh, for some reason in the comments, if you leave a link in the comments, it's not clickable. So it actually is an improvement to the course, but boy, it is quite tedious. Like you have to go through and just check everything and you know, it's what it is. But, um, we're working on that. We've gotten through the first 19 levels of the course, so we're more than halfway uh, and of the foundation course. And so what's going to happen? So why does this matter to you? Well, if you're on the foundation course, when we make this transition uh, to having five separate courses that we're also going to sell separately as lifetime access options for each individual phase, uh, we're going to be turning off comments on the foundation course, and we're going to stop updating the videos in the foundation course. And we're only going to be allowing comments on the new courses and updating videos in the new courses, which doesn't mean that you can't use the foundation course, but it'll just be a legacy course and you won't be able to comment. So we are going to encourage people 
to move over to the other courses. And of course, anybody who has a subscription, you'll be granted all these courses, so it should be pretty easy. The only slight disadvantage of this is that, um, you know, if you, the progress bar through the different, through the foundation course, you'll lose that, I suppose. But I mean, that's a, it's barely anything. Once you start a, a new phase, you can just look at the progress bar for that individual phase and you'll be all good to go. So, this is actually really exciting because what it means is that we're going to have a new pricing structure for the course. We're going to have a new type of lesson as well. So since we're making this change, we decided we wanted to improve on the layer of the language of vocabulary. So we talk a lot here at Mandarin Blueprint about how the layers of the language are very important to successfully acquiring Mandarin. You have to start with pronunciation. You must start with pinyin and pronunciation and understand how it functions. And luckily, because Mandarin only has 420 unique syllables, this is an achievable goal within a relatively short amount of time. Then you need to start looking at character components. What is a component of a character? What does it mean? How do you write it? Then at almost the same time, you need to move to characters and you how do the components create the characters. Then from there, you have characters into words. And some characters in and of themselves are words, but most words in Chinese are two characters. And then there's also a lot of three and four character words. And uh, technically, there's some uh, <laughs> six and eight character uh, idioms and phrases and stuff, but that, that's a little bit different. So we start unlocking that vocabulary. Now we have mnemonic techniques for that, but one of the things that we realized was that we could spend a bit more time on this layer, on this layer of coming up with a mnemonic device to remember the word in this time between you seeing the word for the first time and then seeing it in context. So we've made two changes. One is that we've moved all of the acquisition lessons, the words in context, the sentences, the paragraphs, the longer form stories, um, all of that we have moved to the end of each level, the second half of each level. And all of the character learning, uh, character component learning, and vocabulary learning is in the first half of the level. Now, why do we do this? Well, if you are doing all of the characters and words in the first half of the level and then unsuspending the flashcards, what this means is that you're going to create a relationship with the characters and the words that you're going to be reviewing several times before you see them in the context section of the level. So the first half is, here's a brand new character you've never seen before. Let's do a Hansa movie method scene to memorize it. Okay. The, learning this character has unlocked three words. Let's think about these three words. Let's think about an image to relate to them. And let's come up with some mnemonic ideas for them. Just to give you a little bit of a help to remembering these words. Now, after you've done that, you unsuspend those flashcards. Those flashcards enter your review cycle. Now, by the time you get to the second half of the level, the characters and words from the very beginning of the level will have gone through your review cycle two, three, maybe four times, depending on how fast you're moving. And that means that you are not new to these characters at all anymore. They are in your longer term memory at this point. So when you start the acquisition part, you already have a bit of a relationship with these words. And so the 
seeing them in the context of sentences makes a lot more sense. So that's what we're going to be doing moving into the new version of the course. And so what that means is that we're adding a type of lesson. Now, in starting in phase three, when you unlock a word in the first half of the level, you're prompted to come up with an image to put into your flashcard and to uh, think about some mnemonic suggestions. We give some mnemonic suggestions, and that's all you do in that lesson. You unsuspend the flashcards, you add an image to the flashcards, and you just come up with your initial relationship with the word. You haven't fully acquired it yet because you need to see it in context, but you've established an initial relationship. And so these are gonna be called vocab unlocked from character. So you learned the character uh, fa, meaning method, and we say, okay, vocab unlocked from fa is kanfa and xiangfa, because you've learned kan and xiang previously. So you come up with your uh, mnemonic devices slash images for those two words, and then you move on. They enter your review queue, and you, and you see them a few times, and then in the second half of the level, you start to see kanfa and xiangfa in the context of sentences. So this is really helpful, super helpful to helping you get from uh, that initial understanding of the character into the initial understanding of the word, see it several times in review, and then see it in context. And then it also splits up the course into more like little sprints. So the first half of level 13 is about the level 13 characters, and that's your first little sprint. And then the second half of level 13 is about seeing those characters and words in context. And then that's a bit of a sprint. And so that way you can kind of break up your study session and have different phases to what you're doing. Also, it gives you the option to see the um, different characters and words to if you decide to not see them in context yet, you wanna first focus on the Henza movie method and first focus on your vocab learning, you can do that. And so when you get to the end of the first half of level 13, you can then skip to level 14, do the first half of level 14, then skip to level 15, do the first half of level 15. That's perfectly fine. As long as at some point you go back to level 13 and do the second half and then the second half of level 14. It's just easier to organize, right? So this is you know, the way that we are going to structure the course in the future, and I think it's going to be much better. It was a good bit of feedback we had from Ben Metcalf about this, and I, I heard what he said, and I thought, that's that's right. That's the right way to uh, acquire these words and characters and then see them in context. So, uh, excellent stuff. Now, let's move on to this week's comments and emails. The first email or comment was from Liam Lamazares on You Did It, which is the final... Uh, lesson of pronunciation mastery. And uh, he says, hey guys, I just finished the pronunciation mastery course. I just wanted to quickly pause to thank you guys for all the effort and passion you've put into this course. It's bursting through the seams of this program and it has helped even a complete newbie like me achieve a good base in pronunciation. Likewise, thanks for answering all my questions. It's been a great help. I'm looking forward to starting the rest of the program and getting to the memory techniques. They sound like a lot of fun. Well, if that's how you're feeling at the end of pronunciation mastery, then I'm very confident in your success. Liam, because that is an attitude that is uh, very positive, optimistic, and also recognizes that there's a lot more to go and that the key is just to keep building every day. You know, I was thinking about how Mandarin Blueprint, you know, what we're kind of doing is we've started to 
perhaps you could say, draft a blueprint of Chinese. And at any given point, we're either focusing on the structural bits, which is kind of like what character to learn next, or we're working on, you know, like a little uh, floor plan for the 47th floor and going, oh, hey, here's how you use this character in a few special ways. And we're drawing out some plans there. Or maybe you could think of it as actually building the building. And so in this spot, we're reinforcing the structure of this particular pillar on this particular floor. It's rather detailed, but it will help you. Or we're focusing on the foundational parts and the, the core of the building and all of that. And this is just something that we're always doing because it's meaningful it's 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 meaningful in a number of different ways like first of all say like I just take it in personally in my life it's meaningful because it gives me something that I know people are finding valuable so great meaningful on a life scale you know I can provide for uh, my family or I can provide uh, for a life that is l less anxious because I'm not as worried about whether or not what I'm doing is of real value, which can be a real existential problem for some people. So that's a meaningful part. How about the actual literal meaning of the language? You're, you're creating a structure to understand a language whose very basic foundations are different from you know, say English or many Romantic languages or many Western languages, you know, it's just got this structure of meanings in the form of characters. And, you know, it's funny because these days, Chinese civilization and Western civilization have had a bit of friction. And some of the reason why I think this happens is just because we have trouble understanding each other because of the different basis in language that we have. But now that it's possible to learn Chinese in a way that is not so... Um, you know, painful and monotonous and full of rote learning, it becomes possible for way more Westerners to start to see, oh, Chinese people aren't evil. <laughs> you know, Chinese civilization isn't evil. It's not going to try to take over the world in the way that Western media tries to put it out there sometimes. I think that Chinese civilization would like to be the greatest civilization in the world, but I don't think that they are, you know, they have designs on trying to you know, conquer the planet or something, you know, which is sort of what you might think if you watch, say, Fox News or read the New York Post. Um, but point is, you know, this is the kind of thing where if you understand the foundation of the language, you can actually potentially get rid of a lot of the misunderstandings that are happening between the different civilizations of the world, or not get rid of, at least ease and uh, sort of escape from believing the worst. That's what's called Thucydides trap, where the rising power in the world, the the motivations of the rising power are misinterpreted by the established power, say like the United States. And then because they assume there's nefarious sort of functioning happening in the rise of the uh, alternate civilization, they therefore, you know, fall into the trap of assuming the worst. And this is not to say in any way that there are no nefarious actors within any civilization because, I mean, it's just too big of a amount, too large of an amount of people for there not to be nefarious actors. Of course there are. But the question is, is it really an existential threat? And I think one of the things that you'll find as you continue to learn Chinese is that the foundations in the language are so rich in wisdom and uh, sort of rich in, well, like just a civilization that's been around a long time. They've had a lot of you know, little idioms and customs and bits of uh, advice and wisdom that have traveled through thousands of years, right? It's like we're not talking about, you know, a short-lived civilization. This has got a deep history to it. And so 
when you see the language, the history is embedded in the language in many cases. And so it's meaningful in the sense that if you understand Chinese, you can help to ease the tensions in the world by understanding a little bit better what this major civilization of the world is is doing and how they think and, you know, things like that. And obviously, I'm making generalizations. People in China think in many different ways, but the foundation on which they think is the Chinese language. So it's such an important thing to be able to understand uh, what's going on. It's more important than ever. So people like Liam, you're doing something seriously meaningful here. Keep it up. Keep it up. End of rant. <laughs> Let's go on to a question that's much more technical from William Beeman on 我也想找男朋友. This is a, uh, di- uh, not a dialogue. Maybe it's a dialogue or it's a short story. I'm not sure. But it comes from phase four. It's a longer form story. By the way, I uh, saw that uh, Dr. William Beeman is rather a famous academic uh, in the U.S. So uh, kudos to you for all of your work that you've done, uh, Dr. Beeman. So he says... Hi, in The phrase seems redundant to describe the desired boyfriend. I get that he should be good looking, but this seems to be kind of stated twice. Can you explain how these coordinated phrases work together? So this is indeed a bit of a complicated sentence. I was uh, you don't see this structure too much, but I'll be able to explain it by breaking it down to a simpler sentence and then showing how it works with the larger sentence. So first of all, I should just mention that how and how can are separate concepts. So the first bit of it is so treats me well. And then the second part is I'm taking the yo's out for now. just means looks good, is uh, is uh, handsome, right? Has grown to be handsome, right? It's a way of zhang de, is a verb phrase meaning grown in such a way de, that it results in handsomeness, how can, right? So um, let's break this sentence down to a simpler version. So what if I were to say, So in that case, I took out the dui wo and I took out the zhang de, and it was just a simple Yo plus adjective, yo plus adjective. So the first adjective is how, the second adjective is how can. So this is just a way of listing two adjectives. Using yo twice is a simple way to list two adjectives. How can I find a good and good looking boyfriend? Yo how, yo how can. Right? So that's a simple way to list two adjectives. Now, if you wanted to make the sentence like it is in the original dialogue, this structure is like this. You have a verb phrase followed by yo, followed by adjective one. So verb phrase one plus yo plus adjective one. And then you have, if you're going to do that, if you're going to set up verb phrase one plus yo plus adjective one, the two sides must be complementary. So if there's a verb phrase in the first section with yo, then the second section with yo also needs to have a verb phrase. They must be uh, complementary in that way. So Verb phrase one plus yo plus adjective one plus verb phrase two plus yo plus adjective two. So we have dui wo. So dui wo is a verb phrase meaning treats me or towards me treats, right? Yo hao. So we have the verb phrase plus yo plus the adjective. And then we have zhang de, verb phrase, verb phrase two, yo, yo tu, and hao can, adjective two. So this is the structure that you'll have. And for what it's worth, 
my discovery of this was an ex post facto analysis of this sentence. But when I read it for the first time, I didn't have any trouble understanding what it meant. So I'm not even sure that this particular analysis of figuring out the verb phrase plus yo plus adjective plus verb phrase plus yo plus adjective is even necessary to really conceptualize. However, uh, it is the way it is structured. So the simpler version is yo plus adjective one, yo plus adjective two, simple way to list two adjectives. If you're going to introduce a verb phrase, you need to make sure you introduce a complementary verb phrase. So we basically have two, like it's kind of like a verb phrase with the result of adjective and then verb phrase two with the result of adjective. So um, that's the way you could think of it. Hopefully that's helpful. And you know, these are great questions. I love that type of question. So thank you to William. All right, next, I'm gonna talk about two comments from Jason Pond on New Vocabulary Unlocked from Man Man. And this is, uh, to be clear, this is a question he asked followed by an answer that I gave followed by his response to my answer. So, and there's more to say about his response. So I'll first say his original question. He says, Why isn't du used here to describe how the action is being done, which we've seen before, like, he wrote here, but that's actually incorrect, but I'll get to that in a second. Could the sentence also be arranged as the man man or something like that? So let's break this down. So the answer to the second question is no, you can't say that sentence. And uh, we'll talk about how you say it correctly. But, um, you know, when you have something that's incorrect, the best thing to do is just to say, oh, that's incorrect and move on. Uh, you know, I did he I did Jason mentions before, but what about getting it correct? And I will explain how to get it correct. But if something doesn't work, asking yourself why it doesn't work is actually an irrelevant question because the why something doesn't work, there could be infinite reasons. You know, it's like there there's an infinite number of ways that you can speak Chinese wrong. And there's technically a finite number of ways you can speak it right. I mean, it's practically infinite because of all the combinations you could make, but still compared to the amount of ways you could get it wrong, you know, I could say bleep blorp, and that's not Chinese, you're wrong, right? So it's like, why is bleep blorp wrong? For Chinese, it's like, well, that's an irrelevant question. It's just wrong, right? It's just not how they say it. So um, the only thing you should t you should figure out when you get something wrong is just to say mm, that didn't work, and then move on. And then when something is right, you go that did work, and maybe ask why did it work. Sure, that's fine. But anyway, let's just continue. So here's the original question. He says, why isn't d used here before to describe how the action is being done? So first of all, the d that Jason wrote here is actually the incorrect d. There's three d in Chinese that are of high frequency. Now the first one, which isn't, which isn't relevant to this question, but I'll just mention it, is the most frequent character in Chinese. It indicates possession, and the structure is basically noun one plus d plus noun two equals noun one possesses noun two. And so it's like, you know, 我的手机, 我的手机. So the first noun is me, the second noun is cell phone or mobile phone, and because I go first, it, the mobile phone belongs to me. Simple. Now, the second d, which I'll uh, get on screen here, the second d is the same d that is used in the word uh, 地方, or 地图, or uh, or sorry, to d or d tu, and this character can also be pronounced d. So when it's pronounced d, it's it's pronounced in such a way that it means earth or ground. When it's pronounced d, it serves to connect an adjective to a verb to explain 
how the verb happens. So, for example, 司机慢慢的走了过来. So, this is the correct de to consider because 慢慢 is an adjective or adverb. Really what this does, what de does, is it turns an adjective into an adverb. So, 慢慢 is just a word that means slow, particularly slow. You know, it's doubled up, right? Slow, slow. Uh, and if I say 慢慢的, then now it means slowly, right? So, 司机慢慢的走了过来 is a perfectly fine sentence, and you should use the de that's the same as, as de. Now, as Jason noticed, he said, well, why isn't it used here? Why is the sentence 司机慢慢走过来? Uh, why is it that and not man man Well, that that's um you know really what it comes down to is a both are okay, both are fine. So that's important to know. You should know that both of them are okay. They mean the same thing. So it's similar to you know when you can omit the the first d. For example, I could say wo the mama, or I could say wo mama, right? Either one is fine. It's kind of similar here. Man man or man man are so common to say that they'll just drop the du because not always, but they can in spoken Chinese because it's just very clear what character would be there. So sometimes you can just drop it. And that's a thing that happens all the time in any language. So that's the answer is that it's just sometimes you omit things when the context is obvious. But that said, though, I wanted to talk about the third du real quick, just to make sure that we understand the three de. So as a review, de one is possession, noun one plus de plus noun two equals noun one possesses noun two. Then we have the second de, which is adjective plus de plus verb. And the what it essentially does is it turns the adjective into a an adverb describing the verb. And so the final one is the verb first plus this de. Now, this d is the same d that uh, is, can be pronounced day as well. It can also be pronounced d um, in certain situations. But when it's fifth tone, d, it's verb plus d plus a descriptive phrase of some sort. So it's basically saying it's another way of describing how the verb happened, but just in a different structure. So how about this sentence? 司机走得很慢. 司机走得很慢. Now, the whole point of this sentence is describing the driver's speed of driving. You know, 司机走得很慢. That's the only point of the sentence. Now, the reason why you would have the sentence 司机慢慢走了过来 is because in that situation, we're also taking the time to describe that the driver is coming towards us or towards, you know, the speaker because they're saying 过来, which means come here, right? So, Man man is a little bit more detailed than man. So if you want to just talk about the verb and how the verb happened, you'll use this verb plus d plus descriptive phrase. Right? But if you want to get more more technical and you want to say, okay, man man And you're what you're really trying to get the point across is that driving here, coming here, then you're going to want to use this first version. Um, now, I gave that answer, and then Jason gave his response to that answer, which I will then in turn respond to again. So Jason said, Phil, 
Thanks so much. This is a very helpful answer. The only things I would say, if I may be allowed to elaborate on the motivation of my question here, one, I feel like I am at the point in my learning where I need to start understanding things in a more systematic, holistic, and structured approach when it comes to acquiring my grammar. Anki is helping to passively input grammar points, which I am fully aware has been emphasized as part of this course. I am not undermining the usefulness and tactical benefit of it, but I know how I learn and I have learned other things, including other languages, and I work best when I can categorize everything and absorb things in buckets of rules. For instance, this tri trifecta of using d in the form of d, d, and d is perfect for someone like me to start seeing things top down now that I have enough bottom up. So I'll respond to this first point here. I, I don't fundamentally have any issue with what you're saying here. I wonder if you're maybe a little bit earlier than like my, my feeling is that at the point in the course, when man, man comes up, I don't really get the sense that this is the time where you're ready to have enough bottom up that you can start learning top down a lot more, but that's just my subjective opinion. So maybe it's uh maybe you are right. Maybe that is exactly the, the time, but it does seem to me that you would need maybe to finish the foundation course before you're uh, bottom-up knowledge is strong enough to be able to attract the top down. So it's like, it's almost like your foundation builds up a magnetic force to it. And when you first start off, it's got barely any magnetic force. And then as you build it up, it's got some magnetic force and there's all this knowledge at the top and it can start to pull it down because if your foundation is strong enough, then uh, you can start to understand things without needing to necessarily learn them from their very basics all the way up to their, um, you know, most complex. So but, um, you know, I would just say that just always be aware of the opportunity cost of digging into things. So if you dig into something and try to categorize them, uh, there's, uh, there's two main problems with this. One is that you stop reading, right? Uh, now, in the case of <laughs> Mandarin Blueprint, I suppose you can just stop and leave a comment and I'll answer it. And then it doesn't really take up too much of your time. So maybe that's not as big of a deal. But the other issue is that um, while Chinese is a surprisingly logical language and there are a lot of rules that do tend to stick, there are always exceptions to rules in language because language is a tool of humans and humans are not perfect buckets of logic. I mean, wouldn't that be a grand world or maybe it would be terrible, um, but we're not always rational. We don't always evolve things perfectly. You know, like the the language is a reflection of us, which is to say that it is in many cases imperfect and, you know, things didn't work out in exactly the categorical bucket you might hope. Physics, sure, you could probably get most things into a categorical bucket, but it's just worth recognizing that that goal may at times not be practical for Chinese learning. But that said, uh, I don't, I, I like everything you're saying. It makes sense to me. Um, and I just would consider that perhaps if you keep going with the uh, silent input for a while, you'll find that a lot of these questions answer themselves. Um, but now let's say, let's move to the second point he makes here. He says, I appreciate your point on if it is wrong, stop there and do not question the why, because at that point you will start to ask questions of a linguistic nature, basically. I totally understand and agree. So I guess I'm not asking why is that sentence wrong? I completely admit that it is. But instead of stopping there and moving on, the question I should and will ask is what should the right sentence be? Because I believe that it's 
by making these mistakes, being cognizant of them and fixing them with appropriate grammar is how I'll learn. And it kind of weaves into my point one in that my passive intake has its limits and I need to be more self-aware of the language from a top-down point of view, not that I'm developing my bottom-up foundation. Once again, thanks, and I hope I explain my thoughts well. Yeah, I mean, this all makes sense. I just think, you know, while we, of course, have not covered everything in the Mandarin Blueprint method, there is a degree of, like, what you're talking about here, uh, where you said, I believe that it's by making these mistakes, being cognizant of them, and fixing them with appropriate grammar is how I'll learn. I mean, bear in mind that we know that these, a lot of the mistakes that beginners make, and we have planned future lessons that you haven't gotten to based on that. So, like, just know that that's there. Sometimes when you're not understanding something in the moment, the reason why it's okay to move on is because the answer will present itself, right? So... It is difficult sometimes to go to, to move on when you didn't totally understand something. That's, you know, who likes that? But there is a sort of higher truth that if you know I will get, get it and I will learn it, then in the interim time between you being frustrated now and learning it later, you're going to learn lots of other stuff, right? Um, and that's the opportunity cost I was talking about before. So anyway... Sounds like we're mostly on the same page, and I hope that my um, thoughts on this are helpful. You know, uh, I think that everything you're saying makes perfect sense, though. So thank you for your input, Jason. Kyrie Shikari on It's a Word for Gwait. We did a uh, case study with Kyrie uh, on, on the podcast only, uh, I think, a couple weeks ago. So if you look in your podcast feed and you want to learn more about Kyrie, you can check that out. He says, regarding the phrase, 可能二十元左右. I know that 左右 means about, but I'm not sure why 可能 is here, as the English translation doesn't seem to indicate it's used. Yeah, so in Chinese society and culture, there is a value in harmony, and there's a value in uh, not offending people. Um, at least... I mean, what offends people is different than what might offend people in the West. Obviously, there's a culture of that in the West uh, at the moment of, like, offense being a very high, uh, you know, if you've offended somebody, that can sometimes be interpreted very negatively. But um, one of the ways that they hedge against this in chi in China, and, you know, you can look at this in one way as, as being serving the value of harmony and in one way as being kind of annoying, uh, it depends on your mood, but... What they'll do is they'll hedge their bets. So, 可能二十元左右 is saying maybe 20, 20 RMB about, maybe about 20 RMB, because it's like they don't want to be caught out telling you incorrect information, right? So, they're double hedging their bets. So, 二十元左右 means about 20 RMB. But if you say maybe about 20 RMB, then if it turns out it was 50 RMB, you have plausible deniability and you were, you know, you said kanung, right? You said maybe. So, um, you know, you'll notice that they say maybe a lot, especially if you're talking to Chinese people who've learned some English. They'll say maybe all the time. And it's because they don't want to lose face, right? They want to maintain that harmonious situation and they don't want to offend you if it turns out that they were wrong, right? So admitting fault is definitely something that I feel that... Uh, you know, Chinese people could rec learn the benefits of from the West because comparatively speaking, I think Western people are more likely to admit fault uh, than Chinese people are because they think it's losing face. And these are things that have developed for a long time. Speaking in generalities, of course, and there are many people I've known in China who are perfectly willing to admit fault, but it's just one of those things where, 
this is a common occurrence. Like whenever I say things like this, all I'm trying to point out is not that this is something that is innate to all Chinese people. Of course not. That would be ridiculous and racist. But what I'm saying is that in my time here, I've observed this phenomenon many times. But that doesn't mean that like it is in any way held as a belief by everybody. It's just sort of a thing that I've noticed. So that's sort of a cultural tidbit to answer that one. It's just a bit of a hedging your bet thing. Corinna, a new vocabulary unlocked for guanzhu. In the first sentence, there's shang. What's the meaning of it in this context? Is it only a kind of helper in this context? For example, can I translate it as on? Is it I'm following you on Weibo? So what she was referring to is zai Weibo shang, or zai Twitter shang, or zai Facebook shang. What's that shang doing there? Like, why do we need that? And it's kind of similar to how we might say on Weibo, right? Or on Twitter or on Facebook. Uh, it's just that instead of having only one character for that, so she sees the zai Weibo and she goes, well, that's the on Weibo. Zai means location or on, right? So what's the need for the shang? And so it's just in Chinese, there's a lot of this type of structure. It's zai plus something and then shang or zhong or xia or li, or why, or nay, like there's a, a different set of words you can use to be a little bit more uh, precise, right? So for so I'll talk about some of them with shang. So for example, zai weibo shang, on the computer. The, there's a flat screen on the computer and it's on that. So shang, right? Zai zhi shang, zhi means magazine. Zai zhi shang is in the magazine. Now, that's an example where in English, we think of it as in the magazine because you open it up and you flip through the pages and it's like in, we feel like it's inside. In Chinese, they conceptualize like say the picture on the page as being on the page. And so they'll say, zai zhi shang, right? Zai bao zhi shang, same thing. In the newspaper is how we might translate it in English, but they think of it as on the newspaper. Zai shu shang on the book or in the book, right? We would say in the book, they say on the book. Here's one, zai che shang, in the car. Now, why wouldn't you say there's a word for Chinese or for inside in Chinese, which is li or li mian, right? So why wouldn't you say zai che li? Well, because cars having a roof is um, not how cars were originally. Originally, you sat on top of cars and so you would get on the car. So to get in the car is shang che, and then to be on, be in the car is zai che shang, right? So the act of getting in the car is shang che. So you'd imagine like, I don't know, uh, some car like Henry Ford's Model T, somebody gets on that car, like they would get on a horse or something, right? And then uh, when they're currently on the car or in the car into the modern day, you would say zai che shang, right? And by the way, the opposite is also true. To get out of the car is xia che. And if you suppose you were on the phone with somebody and they were they thought you were still in the car, you might say, well, zai che xia. But I mean, uh, you probably wouldn't have much context to say that, but still. Um, so that's some examples of where you use zai plus noun plus shang. How about zai plus noun plus xia? Well, zai ta de zhi dao xia. Zhi dao means guidance or tutelage. So zai ta de zhi dao xia. Under his guidance, I did something, you know? Uh, and that's usually how these sentences are structured. It tends to start with the zai something something xia, or zai something something shang, and then what else, you know? So under his tutelage, under his guidance, I 
pass the test. 我考过了考试。在这个情况下 ，that's really common. 在这个情况下 ，in this situation， 情况 ，right? In this situation， 在这个情况下，不要说话。So I don't know. You're watching a speech, and someone says, "In this situation, don't talk." Five-year-old kid who doesn't know this, right? So that's another example. They conceptualize that situation as you being under the situation, right? How about 中在你的演讲中演讲 means speech. 在你的演讲中 so in your speech, right? So it's usually with 中 it's kind of related to time and that you're in the midst of it. So in the midst of your speech or in your speech, right? 在过程中过程 means process. So in the process, 在过程中 right? So amidst the process, that's why you use 中 there. How about 里 which means inside? 在家里 at home, in the home. 在家里家 means home. 家里 is in the home. Uh, 在学校里 in the school. 在办公室里 in the office. So you can see how all of these can give more detail as to where you are and your relationship to it. So it is kind of a relator. That's a good way to think of it. It's like, is your relationship that you're inside? Is your relationship that you're on? Is your relationship that you're under? Is your relationship that you're amongst or amidst? These are all the possibilities. And I mean, there's more possibilities than this, but that's the structure. Next, we have a question from Corinna on it's a word for du.、Uh, and this is actually a callback a little bit to what we were talking about with Jason earlier in the podcast. She says, "Why does the first sentence 你起码起得太快了 need the character 起 Two times. I'm just trying to think of different scenarios for why it's needed twice, but I'm just not sure. So I thought I'd ask. Could I say, 你起得太快了 and have it mean you ride too fast? Absolutely. So this is um this is an interesting thing in Chinese. So you can use this verb plus plus descriptive phrase, and you can also sort of double it up. And when you do one or the other, kind of depends on the context. So you could say, 你起码 Or you could say now I think you'd probably say the latter more often because you say you're watching somebody ride a horse. If you're watching them ride a horse and they're going too fast, you can just say why? Because it's obvious you're you're riding a horse. But you could also which would mean to ride a say a.、Um, A e-bike or a regular push bike. So, if that were the case, then、uh, you and and say you're not in front of the person riding a horse. You're just commenting on something that they do. Like, oh yeah, that guy. He always rides horses too fast, right? So, in that case, you might say ni tima ti de tai kuila. Because if you just said ni ti de tai kuila, it's like, well, ti what? A horse? A bike? An e-bike, right? So if you're not in the situation where you're actually watching it, you can imagine somebody clarifying that what they're saying is "tima," right? Now you also notice that in these other examples I'll put here, when you have the doubled up bit, the first bit is a verb what structure. So "ti" is a verb meaning to ride. "Ma" is a noun, so it's a thing, a what. So ride what? You ride a "ma," a horse, right? So how about "shuo hua"? Shuo means to speak. Speak what? Hua words. So you're speaking words,、um, and so you might say, "Ta shuo hua, shuo de yodi er luan." Ta shuo hua, 
说的有点乱。He speaks a little bit chaotically. Hmm. I wonder who does that in the world. Um. <laughs> but 他说话说的有点乱 This is an example where you'd almost always say 他说的有点乱 Why? Because there's not many other things that you 说 besides 话 Right. That's one of the reasons why 说话 is a thing that foreigners sometimes get confused about. They're like, why do I need this? Extra character here. Can I just say "shul"? And it's totally understandable. It's just theoretically,、uh, you know, maybe you are there's something else that you could speak besides words. But the point is, because it's almost always "hua," it's easier to omit that first bit. But how about this? 我开车开得很开心 versus 我开得很开心 Well, once again, probably you could say 我开得很开心 But kai is also a verb that could be applied to other things than cars. So、uh, you could be opening a door, and so theoretically, <laughs> you could be saying, "Well, kai da and kai shin." Like I opened the door and I was so happy, right? You know, and so by saying, "Wo kai chu, kai da and kai shin," it just clarifies it that little bit.、It、says, "What are you kaiing there?" Oh, it's a chu. Okay, kai chu. You're driving. You're talking about driving. Okay, cool. Got it. Now, what about it? Kai da and kai shin. Oh. That's great, right? So, by establishing that verb what word at the beginning of the sentence, you make sure there's no.、Uh, it's easier for the person to understand, right? So, that's how that works. So, great question from Corinna. I love these questions. All right, Georgia Swanson on new vocabulary unlocked for eats. Regarding the first example sentence, eats 不能做坏了 Is it just implied from context that this is a passive voice and the chair can't be sat on? Of course, chairs themselves cannot sit. So I guess I'm wondering if this is one of the instances where you would just use the contextual clues and your amazing common sense skills <laughs> to determine that it's not the chair itself that cannot sit. Yes, yes, you've got it exactly right, Georgia. There's a lot of things you can do this with, with like,、uh, you know,、um, 道路不能走，施工了。Right, yeah. So, like,、uh, that would be the exact same structure of a sentence, but it, 道路 means road, and、uh, you could, or 路 you could even just say 路不能走 right?、Um, or 道路不能走高速公路不能走 That's a highway, right?、Um, and 施工了 would mean、uh, if I were to throw in the reason why、uh, it's under construction. 施工了施工施工道路施工 is road construction.、Um, So, if something is like that, you can use that structure all the time. It's actually a really simple structure, right?、Uh, some object bunung used be used in the way it's meant to be used, right? So, it's a bunung zuo because you sit in chairs, so but you can't because it's、uh, it's broken. It's just a very simple kind of cavemany way of saying that exact thing. And Georgia, you figured it out on your own, and I'm not surprised you figured it out on your own because when I read that, I was like, oh yeah. I never really thought about that. It just always made perfect sense to me. It's like, it's 不能坐 I didn't think that what they were saying was, "Hey, chair, you can't sit down over there" or something, because <laughs> obviously a chair can't sit down. So,、uh, you're right on point, Georgia. Lisa, on bonus, how does what adverbs of denial? So in the first example, we have 不 before the verb, such as 不说话 and in the second, we have verb 不 results, such as 找不到 Can you also say "bu jiao," i.e., turn it into a "bu" before the verb construction, or can some verbs only use the verb plus "bu" plus result construction? It's not a matter of whether or not a verb can use the construction or not. Theoretically, all verbs could use the construction. It's that they mean different things. So, 
不说话 means don't speak. Whereas 说不出话 you'd have to add in 出 in that case. 说不出说不出 uh, like I 说不 exit. So 说不出 would mean it's impossible for me to speak. When you put verb plus 不 plus result, what it means is that the result cannot be achieved by the verb. So I go. I cannot speak. Right? It's impossible. 说得出话的说得出话 means I can. Right? Which is true at the moment.、Um, whereas 不说话 just means don't speak. So 不找 just means not look for, do not find. 找不到 means the result. Of success, which is dal when it's used in that way, it means dal means to arrive, but it could also metaphorically mean you arrived at the thing you wanted, right? So, dal,、uh, if you dal dal, it means that I was looking. Where's my phone? Where's my phone? Oh, dal dalla. But suppose I was looking around for my phone for ages, and I just couldn't find it. I would say, "Wo dal bu dal shoji." That means I cannot achieve the result of success, dal. Through the act of looking, jaw. Now, if I said jaw the dalda, what the show ji jaw the dalda, should jaw the jaw jaw the dalda. That would mean it can be found. I, I haven't found it yet, but it can be found, right? It's possible to achieve the result of dal success by jaw, right? So jaw the dal, jaw bu dal, ting the dong, can listen and understand. Can listen with the result of understanding. Ting bu dong cannot listen with the result of understanding. Right, so that's what this is all about. It's like it's just about can the result be achieved versus、uh, can the result not be achieved. It, possible versus impossible. That's basically the the difference. Whereas just bu jiao just means not look. Well, bu jiao shoji, I'm not going to look for my phone. Doesn't mean it can't be found. Doesn't mean it can be found. It just means I'm not looking for it. So that's the.、Uh, Situation. Good question, Lisa. I like this question from Andreas because it tells me he's getting the hang of things. He says, "In the new vocabulary unlocked lesson for 吃饭 he says, 'I'm assuming that in the sentence 吃饭时别大声说话 ,'时 indicates that the concurrent happening of 吃饭 and 大声说话 correct? Yes, exactly. It's basically just saying when eating 吃饭时 When eating or eating when, don't speak loudly. Don't 大声说话大声 means loud sound. 大声说话 means speak loudly, right? So, 吃饭时 eating when when eating, 别 don't loud speak 大声说话 right? And so you can either say 吃 by itself. This is a little bit more formal to say it by itself. The spoken way of saying it is. 的时候，吃饭的时候，录播课的时候，坐飞机的时候，嗯，说话的时候 ，like it's a, anything that you put followed by 的时候 means in the moment of doing that thing. So the and in a way you can say it's the possession use. So 吃饭的时候 ，the the moment that is owned by eating. Is a way that you could think of that, right? So, 吃饭的 so what is owned by 吃饭 the moment 的时候
shihol. So shihol is the word for moment, and a little bit more formal way to say, say it is chifan shi or shuhua shi. But if you say shi by itself, you do not include the d, right? So it's either chifan d shihol, shihol, or chifan shi. Either one, but it can't. You can't say chifan d shi. That sounds terribly wrong. So you can't say that. All right, nice. Jason Pond, a new vocabulary unlocked for I'm able to make this sentence out, but I'm just confused about the usage of tai in here and what is it expressing. Can you explain, please? So I just want to point out, Jason, that uh, this is an example of what I was saying in your previous question, which is that we actually made a whole lesson about this, but we waited until you've seen this structure several times before we introduce the lesson. And so this is an example, again, like where I'm just saying that sometimes the answer to what you're looking for will come up. And the, the reality is everything will come up as long as you keep reading and as long as you keep learning characters. So anyway, that said, though, let's answer the question. Only under this condition, achieve the result desired. So conditional statements, condition, tie, achieve condition, uh, achieve goal, right? So condition and goal. So my goal is to mingbai. That's or nung mingbai, right? So be able to understand. That's my goal. Uh, what is the condition to meet it? Look at, read this book. So I want to be able to understand there's only one condition is to read this book. So let's establish that condition. So the tie just comes before the goal, right? Uh, and it's kind of, you know, only then, <laughs> only under this condition, under this condition, only then can you achieve understanding. So you'll get the hang of this one. It comes up all the time. Sometimes you can omit drill. Uh, and just have tie, and then you can just figure out from the context. So, anyway, Jason, I wasn't trying to say that, like, you know, it's bad that you ask this question. Ask questions all the time. I'm just saying that, like, it, it was interesting. I, but luckily, I just, what's nice about it from my perspective is when we make content, I can just then send you the content, right? So, like, I responded to you, but I said, here's the lesson, you know, so that's the advantage for us of making content. In a way, it's kind of like a way of just making it so that it's not like I have to explain all this stuff uh, for the first time. We're going to end with a, a question from Christopher Weeks on new vocabulary unlocked for Ling Wai. And uh, this is a good question. Well, it's a complicated question, but I think it's worth uh, talking through. He says, in the sentence, 我的一个朋友在外面玩,另外一个朋友在里面工作. Why is 我的一个朋友 used instead of 我有一个朋友 or 我的朋友? I wasn't uh, aware we could use e after the particle d. Similarly, I could use ling wai peng yo, ling wai de peng yo, or do I have to use ling wai yi ge peng yo? Right, so let's go through this. So first of all, wo de yi ge peng yo zai wai mian war. All right, so this sentence is my one friend is outside playing. Ling wai yi ge peng yo. Another friend is in inside working. If you're talking about an individual person, uh, and you're you're uh, comparing it to another individual person, you got to count them, right? So that's how Chinese works. As soon as you're counting things, um, then you need to put the measure word. So my one friend is here, 
my other one friend is here. Now, I could suppose I change the sentence to 我的一个朋友在外面玩，另外三个朋友在里面工作。My one friend is outside playing. Another three friends are inside. In that situation, we could totally understand why you would need sanga. So in this case, that illustrates that you need to put the measure words in. Now, uh, the problem with 我有一个朋友 is that that's just saying something different. I have a friend that plays outside, but it's not saying this is what's happening. Uh, I have a friend who is playing outside right now that doesn't line up with the second half of the sentence because the second half of the sentence is contrasting that with other friends. So if you said that, it, it, you'd, run a, you'd run into a grammatical problem there because you, what are you going to say in the second part of the sentence? So it's really, 我有一个朋友 is just a separate sentence and that's why it doesn't work. Now, 另外朋友, that just sounds wrong to me. And again, it's because you're contrasting. You're making contrasting between people, actual countable people, right? And you also said, I wasn't aware we could use e after the particle de. But what is owned by the person? 我的 what is the entirety of the thing? 我的一个朋友. That's the whole phrase that is owned by 我. I mean, you don't like literally own your friend, but you get what I'm saying. Like, they, they, they're, you're, they're friends with you. He's my friend. We would say my friend in English. It's 我的朋友. It doesn't literally mean owning them. And so... It's the whole phrase, 一个朋友. So th there's no rule that says you can't put e after d because it's not, it's not, the rule isn't 我的 plus the next character is the thing that's owned. It's the whole phrase. So 一个朋友. Now, and of course, it's easy to understand if I said 我的三个朋友, right? My three friends, right? So uh, clearly, if we could use san there, then we could use e. So that's kind of how you can understand that. Uh, and yeah, it's because you're counting and contrasting that you need to have the ego. Nice. Next, we'll move on to our movie scene shares uh, that are the full mnemonic scenes. Mnemonic scenes to remember lessons. Sometimes they're full scenes, and then sometimes they are they are um, just scenes that uh, or, or, or suggestions for keyword connections or props or things like that. So first, we'll start off with Heath Campbell on make a movie for you. Yu means fish, pronounced to the second tone. I learned this word a long time ago when using another course. To me, it always looked like someone casting a net over water to catch fish. Not sure I'll be able to change that. It's pretty stuck in my head. Sure. I mean, one of the things that intermediate students or students who have experience in other places, which is a lot of our clientele, actually, because, um, you know, the people who win the SEO battles for, like, I search Chinese course, right? It's Mandarin Blueprint's not going to win that because there's many companies who have been around for like over a decade. And so they've been putting out content for over a decade and like, you know, we'll eventually be around long enough that we can start to compete with the people on the first page of Google when you type in like Chinese course. But most people try something else first. They find that maybe it doesn't work as well as Mandarin Blueprint because I do believe it is actually innovative. Uh, this course. And so they'll know some stuff already. And if you know something already and you even had a mnemonic for it, then, hey, you did it. You already achieved the goal of learning the character. So you can skip doing the Hanzi movie method. It's perfectly fine. Next, we have Will R on make a movie for Qi. I always like how Will writes out his scenes because he always uh, makes very clear 
what everything is. So the keyword is period of time. The actor is his QI actor in the childhood home outside the entrance near the front door. And the props are T, which is other, which I believe he thinks of as like the other, like maybe the others in Game of Thrones, or maybe there's some other fiction where there's the other. And then the which is moon. So Chi actor at the front door of childhood home, she waits for the moon to battle the other. They wait a long period of time until things change. The other springs up for battle. The moon says to Chi, the period of time for waiting is over. So maybe what you could have happen to make this even clearer, Will, I like the scene. It's everything's there and we're getting across the idea of period of time. So basically you could imagine that the sun rises and sets and the moon rises and sets several times and in quick succession, like that montage thing you can see in movies. And maybe you see the other and the moon like checking their watches and they're clearly waiting and it's a period, this long period of time. And then, uh, you know, the time has arrived. The period of time is over. That's perfectly fine. And, uh, that might make it a little bit clearer in your mind's eye. Great scene. Robert Carver on make a movie for Tway. Uh, Tway has this meaning of droop. It kind of droops a little bit like, uh, you know. And so so let's see here. Pikachu two, is in the kitchen of my EI set. So Tway fighting a T-1000, which is the middle component, Tian, with twin katanas for arms. Nice. So Pikachu's got twin katanas and he's fighting the T-1000. Uh, or maybe he's saying the T-1000 has twin katanas for arms. That makes sense. Pikachu tries to summon his most awesome power, but instead accidentally conjures up a rose. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Which immediately droops in his hand. Pikachu, of course, is immediately impaled and his head droops down as the life leaves him. Wow, that was a little bit intense, Robert, but I like it. It's a very clear scene. And of course, whenever you have violence in your movies, you can make it as cartoony and, uh, you know, fake looking as you want. Um, you know, or you can make it as gory as you want, depending on how memorable you want it to be. You know, as a reminder to anybody on the course, violence and sexuality are very memorable things for human beings. But, you know, we're a family course, so we try to keep things a little bit more uh, PG when we're talking about, you know, some of these things. But just, you know, for yourself, if you're doing a, if you're doing any of these that, uh, you know, maybe are of a sexual nature, no need to necessarily share it on the course, but it might help you remember certain things. Soren on Make a Movie for Chu, which means to remove or divide or whatever. I've got my CHU actor, chef from South Park, using a toothbrush, his left side component, to remove the stones of the apple core. Oh, right, because means surplus or extra, and that's the extra part of an apple, right? Like you, the apple core is the part you got to throw away at the end because you don't eat it, right? So using the toothbrush to remove the stones of the apple core, then giving a speech about how it can be eaten now, the stones have been removed, right? So I like that. Gets across everything very clear. He's doing something. It's Chef from South Park. So Chef from South Park obviously would be good at dealing with food. And so it's even in character. I like it. Excellent. Nick Sims on Make a Movie for Jiao. Janet Jackson is outside of Lifetime Fitness. I think he wrote here third tone. I think he meant to say first tone. Uh, is outside of Lifetime Fitness, AO, with a with tight yoga pants outfit getting ready to enter the building. I can imagine Jan Jackson that way, all right. The Godfather, Fu, walks up with a top hat, nice, 
on and is completely stunned by Janet. He asks that they can mingle and offers to take her on vacation, making her dreams come true. They not only develop an instant friendship, but they immediately have a desire for intercourse, love at first sight. Yeah, of course, jiao means intercourse. And, you know, some people have uh, given us some flack for choosing that keyword, but it actually is the best keyword for this character because there are so many words that use jiao and intercourse covers the most, the broadest range of the meanings. So, um, first of all, xing jiao does indeed mean sexual intercourse, but also shu jiao meiti is social media. So shu jiao is social. So, um, you know, Jiao uh, Ji is like human interactions. It's kind of like an abstract way of talking about human interactions. Li Jiao Chao, Li Li Jiao Chao is a standing uh, intercourse bridge. So you basically what we're talking about there is those big bridges. Um, there's a lot of them in Chengdu of where they uh, overpasses on the highway that have like these big circles and you know they it's just for changing directions at, at a big highway that's called a li jiao jiao so it's the point where all of the cars come together and meet right so of course intercourse doesn't only have to be sexual it can be social intercourse it can be various just humans coming together and moving and communicating in some way so um that's a great scene i love that scene <laughs> Will R on make a movie for uh, Bao. So this is the the character we use for full. You know, 吃饱了, I've I'm so full of Bao. That that that's one of those words that it feels like it's the right word for that. Like oh, full Bao. Right. So it's pretty pretty uh, pretty accurate. Okay, B at AO's living room. So that's his B actor in the AO living room. The B actor is hungry, so he orders from the food menu, which is the left side prop, on an app on an app he has. The food later arrives in a big heavy bag. Uh, bao, right? Nice. Uh, the B actor eats the food from the heavy bag till he is full from the food. Bao. His belly turns from innie to outie due to being so full, just like Homer Simpson's did. And he leaves a YouTube link to the moment where this happens <laughs> in The Simpsons. And so, yeah, I like it. Um, the only thing I would say is that, like, I get the app on the phone thing, but I would think that might not be as memorable. Like, maybe you can imagine, you could do a couple things. One, you could imagine that he's actually ordering from a big old menu and maybe does it the old-fashioned way and calls on the phone and orders something from the big old menu. Um, just to make that prop a little bit clearer. Or, alternatively, you could make the phone phone uh outrageously big like as if it's like a huge ipad instead of a phone so that you can see the details of it being a menu in your mind's eye very clearly um just as a suggestion and then yeah and then the belly turning from any to audi probably that's enough but if you want he can get like really big and you exaggerate as much as you need stephanie arapian on make a movie for e which means clothes or clothing Idina Menzel is on the front sidewalk announcing Idina's new clothing line to fashion reporters. After the grand announcement, music starts playing. Short skirt, long jacket. And then Idina steps out the front door, sashaying down the front steps in a tutu and a top hat. And boots, because they're made for walking. <laughs> nice. I love it. Got the fashion reporters get across the idea of fashion. Um, that's a great addition to it. Uh, short skirt, long jacket, very iconic song. Um, uh, the tutu and the top hat are a great fashion choice. You know, the boots, like, um, obviously the boots aren't a part of the prop necessarily, although they're 
they're, they're not a prop, but they are a part of the meaning because they're a part of clothing. So that's fine. I don't think you'll get confused there. Probably just make the tutu and hi-hat, or hi-hat, top hat. Hi-hat is a drumming symbol. <laughs> make the tutu and top hat, um, they're, uh, make them sh glowing a little bit so you know that the boots aren't a prop, but the tutu and top hat are. Uh, excellent. Great scene. Della Fuller on Make a Movie for Bay, which means to prepare. Ben is waiting in the backyard of Bard on the Beach when he sees a sloth trying to cross the flooded rice field across the road. He shakes his head when he sees how unprepared the sloth is. He grabs a raincoat, rain boots, and an umbrella and goes to rescue the sloth because now he is prepared for the wet crossing. So nice. We've got everything we need in this story. Um, waiting in the backyard of Bard on the Beach. So... I like that. So we've got um, Bard in the Beach plays. That's what she put that there for because it rhymes with A. So like that. Um, and then we got the sloth, which is the top component, and crossing the flooded rice, rice field. And so unprepared is kind of the way that she gets across it by showing contrast. And then he grabs all the things that you would need in preparation. So it's a use of contrast to get across the meaning. Contrast is like the easiest thing. So whenever you're learning a character and you look at the keyword, just ask yourself, what's the opposite of this? And can I show that in my scene? It's like, it doesn't always work, but it works a lot. Works a whole lot. Nice. Soren on Make a Movie for two as an interesting or interest. Churchill has no interest in exercising, that's true. Yet, he finds himself in the bathroom of my childhood home with a treadmill and an ATM. Nice. So those are the two props because the treadmill is the zo left side component, and the ATM is the chu to take. And the an ATM in Chinese is called a chu quan ji. So take your money out, uh, machine. And so he's he's in his childhood home bathroom on a treadmill with an ATM. Ridiculous. However, if he doesn't do it, cash withdrawals come with high interest rates. Suddenly, it is in his interest. To exercise, he takes a minute or two on the treadmill before withdrawing his cash with zero interest rates. I like it. So he's combining the meaning of interest is in I'm interested in this and interest is in um, interest on a loan. And I love that. Uh, obviously, it, this doesn't mean interest on a loan. That's li xi. Uh, but interest, it's a you know uh, uh, homonym. So you can use that perfectly in in your scenes it's perfectly fine you're not going to get confused about which one it actually means and bihari on make a movie for yung which means shadow her actor is eve the set is a uh, restaurant and uh, the room is the main dining room the props are the great wall and dreadlocks i love it perfect because great wall is the scenery around beijing which is the whole left side component there and then the right side is dreadlocks because guy i could see how that looks like dreadlocks Eve is sitting at the next table over in the main dining room of Zhengchi. She is also looking at all the different paintings on the wall. Her gaze rests on a very unusual painting of the Great Wall. There is a man with long dreadlocks standing on the right-hand side of the painting. He's casting a very long shadow that extends almost the entire length of the wall in the painting. Nice. I like that. So it's like, you know, you could maybe, again, we can add special effects to this. Like the wall in the painting, the shadow like extends along the wall and follows it and goes deep into the painting. And then maybe the wall actually starts to come out of the painting and into the restaurant right up to the actor. Um, and uh, yeah, there's the, as long as the main idea is that it's the shadow that comes from the dreadlocks. <laughs> I like it. 
and Bihari on make a movie for Jing, which is the keyword of capital, like uh, Beijing is, uh, uses this character, of course. And you've got uh, Dongjing, which is Tokyo. Uh, Tokyo is the Japanese pronunciation of the characters Dongjing. So Dong means east, Jing means capital, so the east capital. And of course, Nanjing is a city in China, which is the southern capital, used to be the capital of the country. Uh, and so, yeah, nice. Keywords capital, actor is Julie, set is Juncture Restaurant. The room is outside the entrance, and the props are Top Hat and a Penguin. Nice. Julie is meeting a representative from the capital at Juncture. She's waiting for him outside the front entrance. How will she recognize him? He'll be in the penguin wearing a top hat. Uh, he'll be the penguin wearing a top hat. Okay. Yeah, I think that this is, I mean, obviously the scene is pretty, you know, clear. Everything that's happening is, is pretty clear. A penguin in a top hat is, you know, uh, very appropriate, I feel. Very appropriate. Um, but how do we know he's from the capital? Like, maybe what he should be doing is, like, he's carrying with him uh, the, a model of the Forbidden City, and he's he's got a great wall uh, tattooed in his arm, and, like, he's just, uh, you know, he's he's got the CCP logo on him or something. It's just something that indicates we're talking about the capital here. This is Beijing here we're talking about. He's got a hutong uh, somehow following him. I don't know. But the something that indicates that it's Beijing. And again, on make a movie for Jing, which means scenery. Her actor is Julie. Her set is a Zhengchi restaurant in the main dining room. And the props are a Mao portrait and the sun. So the Mao portrait represents the capital of Beijing because it's right in the center. And the sun is the top component. Julie and the penguin are sitting at one of the big round tables at Zhengchi restaurant. They're looking around at all the traditional paintings of Chinese scenery and notice one that seems oddly out of place. It's of the sun high above the portrait of Mao in Tiananmen Square. It's more pop art than the other more traditional scenery landscape paintings. You know, there are a lot of pop art images of Mao here in China, and clearly it's fine. It's interesting. Like I, when we went to Dali last month, we walked into our Airbnb and there was this big picture of Mao, but it was like pastel neon, like all like his skin and his clothes were all pastel neon or whatever, which is kind of interesting. It's like, seems sort of subversive, but it's still a picture of Mao. So it's interesting. Uh, I don't know what to make of that, but um, that definitely would stand out if you had a bunch of traditional scenery paintings and then you had this one of Mao with a sun. Um, you know, obviously a painting is 2D, so maybe turning the painting a little bit 3D somehow could help a little bit, but ultimately a good scene. And Bihari on make a movie for um, Yo, keyword especially, actor Eve, set Rosemont Elementary, room cafeteria, props diving board, hook and eyedropper, nice. Eve, visiting her sons at Rosemont, is in the cafeteria line for lunch. The cafeteria ladies have set up a miniature diving board for dinosaur chicken nuggets to jump all, jump into the frying oil. Nice. <laughs> all right. Using a medium-sized hook, the dino nuggets are then scooped out of the oil and onto the kids' plates. Next, the kids get an eyedropper filled with ketchup to squirt onto the dino nuggets. Eve thinks to herself, this is especially creative for a school lunch. Do they do stuff like this every day? Yeah, sure. Especially is, um, you know, a little bit tough to get across. You know, what you want to have is like uh, something where it's like, uh, you know, you imagine 
There's there's several eyedroppers, and one of them is especially full. They're all full, but one's especially full. And there's a bunch of diving boards, and there's, uh, you know, the dino nuggets are jumping off them, but one of them is, and they're all jumping frequently, but one of them is jumping especially fast. But yeah, you got the idea. I think this is good, especially created for a school lunch. Um, you know, if you forget it, then try some of those other things with the props where you make them all have a characteristic, but one a little bit more than the other. So especially that one. So that's it for today's podcast. That's all the questions and comments that came in. Thank you so much for watching and listening. As a reminder, we were on the Language Mastery Show over at languagemastery.com. So be sure to check that out and check out John Fotheringham's work over there. We'll have more stuff for you next week. And thanks so much for the questions. As always, I'm Phil Crimmins signing off.